I'm Brandon, the online campus pastor here at Big Valley Grace, and thank you for taking a moment to watch this message. It is the teaching portion from one of our live weekend worship gatherings, and we have those every single weekend here online and in person, and I just want to extend an invitation to you to join us. We're just a local church, local body of believers, and we would love if you would join us uh, on a weekend upcoming here sometime soon. Uh, but as we get headed into this message together, a couple things just want to point you to. One is a connect card. If there's any way that, that we can pray for you, if you want to contact us, that connect card form is just a really great way uh, to let us know that you're joining us. Any next steps you want to take, stuff like that is right on there. Also, if you want to bring an offering, a worshipful gift uh, to King Jesus, you can do that right on our give page on our website or via text. So hope you enjoy the unpacking, the unfolding of the word as we look at it together. Good morning to you. And again, all the dads out there, happy Father's Day. Glad you guys are with us. Uh, welcome to those of you who are joining us right now live online. Glad you are with us as well. Uh, if it's your first time, second time, regular uh, attender here, that's, this is great to have you guys with us today. Um, we're gonna be in the Gospel of Mark as we've been going through this teaching series. But before we do, I wanted to give you a little update on this ministry at Big Valley Grace that's new, started about a year ago. It's called Settled. And if you've been with us uh, and you were here last weekend, we passed out a flyer. And there's these refugees, um, refugee families that have been uh, coming to Modesto before past year from Afghanistan and in the past year from Ukraine. And as a church, we've noticed that. We've paid attention and we've tried to think of some ways that, that we can actually meet some real needs and we shared phase one of that, what that looked like a year ago and some great opportunities to be involved. And we wanted to give you an update on where we're at and where we see God leading us going forward. So check out this little video update from Pastor Tim. Hey, Big Valley, can you believe that just a, a little less than a year ago, we kicked off the Settled Ministry and you showed up. You brought blankets and sheets and towels and pillows and pillowcases and car seats. And oh my, it was incredible. We were overflowing and it blessed so many families. Well, now it's time to start hey, phase Big two. Valley, what is phase two? We built a storage a, unit a little less than a and year start ago, to we kicked be off ready the Settled to Ministry and you showed up. You and brought blankets and furnished sheets and towels and pillows and pillowcases and car seats. And oh my, it was incredible. The government gives overflowing. Relief, which is a Christ-following organization that partners with the government, gives them a list of everything that's needed, both uh, quantity and quality that's needed to go into these apartments, and then they give it to us, which is now on our website, and you can see everything that's needed. And what we do is you're going to bring it, you're going to bring it, and drop it off at the services, you're going to drop it off at list of everything that's needed, you're going to bring it and then we're going to fill this place up, and we're going to start bringing them to the and then they give it to us, which is now on our website, and you can see everything that's needed. And what we do is they're gonna, you're going to bring it. That's you're going to bring it and drop it off at, at, at phase three. three. The service. Phase three is where we walk alongside of families. You're going to bring it. Where we help them adjust to life in the United States and life right here in Modesto. You know, how to get around in the education system and how to navigate that. How to go to the DMV and navigate the DMV. Nobody knows how to do that. Hopefully you'll be able to help them. And so that's what we're going to do with them. But the most important thing we're going to do with them, by building relationships and being involved in their everyday life, we're going to be able to share the message of Jesus Christ with them, the hope that we have in Christ. That's why we're trying to get to phase three. We want to be involved. We're going to equip you. We're going to teach you. We're going to help, help you learn exactly how to walk alongside of these families. So you sign up to help with that. Maybe you'll help us with the inventory. Maybe you'll help us delivering uh, supplies. Maybe you'll help us picking up supplies. Maybe you'll help with those things. And we sure do hope that you will join us and partner with the Settled Ministry in helping those areas. 
that maybe you're going to say, because the Lord's going to call on your heart, I want to be a part of phase three. I want to walk with families. Tell us now so we can begin to get you trained and equipped and ready to go. So excited about what God's going to do through the settled ministry at Big Valley and you. I can't wait to see how God's going to use Big Valley Grace and the settled ministry to change people's lives because he's going to use you. I'm looking forward to it, church. Now, I realized something really important that was not in that video. It is, who, is, who are these families? In the settled ministry, there's these families that have fled out of Afghanistan and in this past year have fled out of Ukraine. And there are those that are actually settling right here in Modesto. And so this ministry is pointed at helping those families. And so that's the who. If you'd like to learn more about this, there's a table out in the lobby today. So after the gathering, you can go out there. Uh, you can put your name down. You can get some more information. And uh, all of this also is on the website. So you can go to the webpage that's right for this and see what some of those needs are. And so that's, that's what's going on with our settled ministry. Um, if you got your Bibles, uh, open up to Mark chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. If you are part of our reading plan, you got a bookmark. Um, you are on the text reminder thread, which is really cool. Uh, you know that the past week we spent time in Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 4. And reading that this past week, uh, there's one section that really caught my attention. And it's this moment and this lead up to when Jesus chooses the 12 apostles. And as we get there, there's going to be these other two groups we're going to see in Mark chapter 3 that not only under, help us to understand what Jesus is doing as he selects this group of the 12, uh, but also give us some really good warnings and wisdom along the way. And so open up to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 1, okay? Again, he, that's Jesus, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. That's the religious leaders. They're watching him. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. I'll share a quick story with you. Uh, yesterday morning, uh, my family, we get up, and my wife has a great little activity for us planned. And so we all pile into our SUV. It's the one vehicle that can fit all of us now. We've got uh, four kids at home. And uh, here's, here's what happened as soon as we got into the vehicle. We had four kids, and we had uh, only one of them who had their Kindle. And apparently the day before, there was this little agreement, there was a negotiation that happened that one of our kids was going to lend their Kindle on this, this ride to the other kid, okay? I'm, I'm omitting names for intentional reasons. <laughs> and it's tough to share, and there's some hesitation to even hand it over, but eventually the Kindle gets handed over to other kid, child. And what happens is as the, the kid who had the candle lent it out, they gave all these rules. You can only read this book. Don't go to this different app. It's going to be this amount of time. Kindle gets handed over. And then the kid who just lent the Kindle looks over and they haven't even blinked. They are staring at the kid that they lent the Kindle to, 
making sure that they follow to a T the prescribed rules that they set up for that person. And I think that's a really good picture. I was kind of laughing to myself as we drove. I was like, that's a picture of this passage. Because as the chapter begins, you've got these religious leaders and they are staring at Jesus. And as we've seen in what's been happening so far, there's this conflict that's been arising between Jesus and these religious leaders. And one of the great themes here in the beginning of Mark has been the authority of Jesus and his authority and how that conflicts with the authority of the religious leaders. From Mark chapter one, remember, as soon as Jesus starts speaking and teaching, as soon as stuff's coming out of his mouth, their jaws kind of drop on the floor. It says they're astonished because of what thing? because of the authority that he taught with. And conflict oftentimes arises over specific issues. Um, This is really true in our, our modern, you know, you think about political parties. Oftentimes, the differences and the tension can boil down to these specific issues. How do you land on this thing? And then there's this conflict that arises over this thing. And so for, for Jesus and these religious leaders, there's this conflict boiling up over observing the Sabbath, okay? Now, all the way back in creation, all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, as God created, he worked for six days and he rested on the seventh. And then when God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt, it says, he gave Moses, as he walks down the mountain, he gave him 10 commandments. And number four was to remember the Sabbath. He gives them the same model of rest. And so this issue of what does it mean to observe has been boiling up. And Jesus says this, the verse right before at the end of chapter two, if you want to see. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, if something's for you, it's, it's a gift. God made it for them as a gift. But what had been given to them as a gift now had turned into a burden. How did this happen? Okay. What happened was over the years, people, religious leaders had added and added rules upon rules on top of what it meant to actually rest. Imagine dads, you say, if, you're, if your spouse says, hey, you can take a nap. Awesome. And then they start giving all these rules. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. You got four minutes. You got, okay. Now what had meant to be restful now had become incredibly stressful because there's all these nuances and exceptions and regulations, and it became something that they feared violating more than they actually enjoyed resting. And the culprits are these ones who are sitting, staring at Jesus. Like my kids staring at their sibling, making sure they don't break the rules. And the religious leaders, they loved the rules. They loved the law. And not in the way that King David in the Psalms talks about loving the commands of God, that they're, that they're life and that, that they, just, they, they bring just life and goodness and he delights in them. It's not, that's not the way that they love the law. They loved the, the law and what it could do for them. They loved it in the technicalities and the details, the provisions. They were the legal experts, And because they were the legal experts, they could use the law to elevate themselves and elevate their own authority and prestige and influence. And Jesus saw right through this. He said, that was not God's heart for rest at all. You've missed it. Your pride has creeped in and changed this. And so in verse six, we read, he defies them. He heals right in front of them. 
And right before their eyes, he performs this miracle. And instead of any sort of reconsideration on their part, maybe this guy is who he said he is, maybe there's something to this guy. No, they double down on their denial. And their hatred for Jesus swells so much so that it says they run out and they immediately run out to the Herodians. Notice in that word Herodians is Herod. They run out to supporters of King Herod, not exactly aligned with them. So they go team up with their enemies to find a common enemy in Jesus to take him out. And notice the escalation here. They go from just wanting to accuse Jesus, just want to discredit him, just want to ignore him, push him away. And now they want to destroy him. Things have heated up. And so in our notes, the first group here that we see is this group of, now they're conspirators. And it's those, they're seeking after Jesus, but they're seeking after him to destroy him. And as we continue the gospel of Mark, we're gonna see how this group uh, really tells the story of this growing urgency and plot to eliminate the, the problem in their minds of Jesus and the threat that he is to them. And so it's a, a story that eventually leads to Jesus on the cross. A couple of quick, quick takeaways and warnings that we see from this group. The first one is to pay attention to motives. Check our hearts. Asking ourselves, God, God, what is it that you want? What is it that you would have? See, where the religious leaders got off track is that they, they, they mistook and they missed the heart of God because they, got, they became about their own agenda. And this slowly and then quickly and radically took them way off course. And oftentimes we'll look at this group and we'll say, well, how, how did they miss Jesus? How did you miss the Messiah? How did you miss the, that this is, this is the one that God sent? This is God's son. When Paul's eyes are opened, says in the New Testament, it says that something like scales fell off of his eyes. And sometimes blindness can come one scale at a time. One self-seeking, one self-serving motive at a time that creeps in. And I've heard it said before that the enemy's tactic, he knows you're too smart to just get you to turn 180 degrees. He doesn't worry about the 180 degrees. He worries about one degree. If the enemy can get you to get off track by one degree right here, what happens? Five steps from now. Five years from now, you will drift farther and farther and farther away. And then at some moment, as sin does, it takes you farther than you want to go, longer than you want to stay, and you're so far away, and you say, how on earth did I get here? It starts with a one degree. Number two, we see from this group, don't have a faith that is defined by rules. Don't fall in love with religious technicalities and legalistic faith, especially if you're so caught up in surfacey things that you miss or ignore the heart of God. And that's exactly what they did. They became so much more about what was man-made, all these rules on top, that they missed focusing on what God had directed of them. And as encouragement to our church family, don't seek and practice and follow a religion of rules, but a relationship of grace. Number three, third, I want to talk about this one for a second. Don't be hardened to truth. See, what Jesus is doing very broadly here, if you look at it, he's just bringing truth to them. 
He's bringing corrective truth to them that they'd missed, they'd misunderstood, they'd got goofed up, and he's handing the truth to them, and he's saying, here's, here's the truth. Now, as he presents this truth, they have the option to receive it, to accept it, to apply it, to follow it. But instead of that, they saw it as a challenge. It challenged where they were at. It challenged how they saw things, challenged their lifestyle, challenged their worldview. It challenged even their self-serving religious system and their own authority and control. It says in verse five that their hearts then became hard. I just ask our church family, ask you to ask yourself, how is my heart towards the truth of God? How is my heart? See, for us, when we think about the places that God's truth might bring, all God's truth, yeah, even the places that are uncomfortable, even the places that you might not agree with, even the places that might go against your flesh and what you feel, even the places that don't seem reasonable or they don't seem right, or they, don't, they, they might challenge what's even popular in our world, what will you do with those things? Will you try to accuse and discredit and ignore and push aside? Will you try to get rid of those things? Will you reject them or will you follow? The question to each follower of Jesus is, what will you do with the truth that Jesus brings? And dads, what an invitation to us. Here's truth that you can build your life on, that you can build your family on, that you can parent with, that you can use to, to say, this is how I wanna be a husband. What will you do with the truth that God brings? Will you be willing to lead from it? Will you stand on it? If you have to stand alone, will you be the one that says, I'm gonna stand on the word of God? Or will you be like these religious leaders who reject it? That's the first group here. We're gonna transition to the second group, and that happens in verse seven, okay? It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a couple of comments real quickly about what that means to withdraw. Um, first, gotta look at why. Why does he withdraw? First, there's something really symbolic about Jesus now taking his ministry. He's taking it outside of the synagogue. He's taking it outside of the established, existing religious system. He's doing something new. And he's gonna talk a little bit about what this new spiritual family is gonna look like at the end of chapter three when he's asked about who his family is. And he says, well, whoever does the will of God, that's my family. In other words, those who follow me, that is my family. And second thing and what withdraw is talking about and why is very practically, Jesus withdraws so he's not destroyed yet. He's not afraid, he's not fearful, he just understands his mission. And this mission has a specific timing. He knows he's gonna die. He knows he's gonna be the sacrificial lamb for the atonement of sins. He knows even that he's headed to a cross. But he knows this isn't it. And he's so following after the Father's will and plan that he withdraws. So let's keep going. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, he came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. He's got a getaway car. Lest they crush him 
for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Let's talk about this crowd for a second. Got a map to show you real quick. Just kind of see the region and all these different places that people are coming from. They're coming from all over. And the real question is, well, why are they here? Now, in general, general rule is that you can tell a lot about a crowd by the makeup of the crowd. You can tell about what they, what they expect to see and why they're here. And just for fun, I'm going to throw up a couple of pictures. And here, this is crowd participation moment. You're going to tell me, shout out, why is this crowd here? Warriors, basketball game. They expect to see a basketball game, okay? I'm going to get a little harder. Next one. Rodeo, absolutely. What's the clue? Cowboy hats, fantastic. All right, last one. Racing, NASCAR, exactly. So you look at the details, you look at the clues of the crowd, and you're like, all right, that's what they're here for. Okay, so if we were to get a picture of this crowd that would help us understand why they're here, I want to look at a couple of details for them. And we get two clues. First one is it said it's a crowd that heard what he was doing. And two, it's a crowd where there's a bunch of people on the inside. They're, they're pressing in to touch him. And all of those people, it says something about them. They all got something in common. They've all got diseases. So if you were to guess why this crowd is here, why they have come, what they expect to see is a healer. They want to see the one who heals. The one that in, back in chapter one, they said that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. They are coming because they want to see this guy who heals. Word got out, flyers got spread all over the region. Man, there's this guy. You got to come see him. He's a healer. He's a miracle worker. And so this second group, the crowd, it's those seeking. Now we've got another group seeking Jesus, but it's different. They're seeking Jesus because of what he could do and what he could do for them. So you've got both in that, those who want to receive the miracles and those who want to be observers to the miracles. Got those on the inside pressed in. They want to experience the miracles. And you got to imagine those, those right outside of them. Hey, man, I brought that guy. I want to watch him get healed right now. So that's this crowd. And they are drawn to the miracles of Jesus. But notice nothing about the message of Jesus. There's no mention of the kingdom of God. There's no message of the message of repentance or, hey, John the Baptist said this was the guy. There's none of that. The crowd has shown up so that they can see this healer. And two things I want you to notice about Jesus' reaction and response to the crowd. First, notice that he's got this concern for the crowd. He cares about the crowd. It says that he healed many of them. God cares and God loves when we bring our request to him, when we ask and we seek and we knock. We read about that in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He loves that. He even gives that, ex that example of dads. And he says, think of it being like a dad. As a dad, don't you love giving good things to your kids? Don't you love when they come to you and they ask for something and you can meet that need? Don't you love when you can provide for your kids? And then he says in response to that, how much more, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? But while Jesus clearly shows his concern and care in meeting these physical needs, he knows that they have a spiritual need that is so much greater that they're not coming to be interested in. 
And with this third group, that's what he's going to show. And we're going to look at that in a second. So that's his first reaction. Second reaction is his lack of contentment. Here's what I mean. Something about the way we're wired is that we will see a, a crowd and we will immediately just equate that with success. Room's packed. Just think, man, this is, this is hopping. This is great. You don't see anybody? Oh, man, something's up. A lot of people, success. Not many, not success. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't see this crowd immediately nudge one of his disciples and nudge Peter and say, hey, isn't this fantastic? Man, ministry's really taking off right now. Actually, after I get done speaking here, I'm gonna head up the mountain and I'm gonna put together a tour schedule. I'm gonna come bring it down to y'all so we can go out and we can just keep doing this because this is, this is where it's at. He doesn't do that. Jesus is not impressed with the size of the crowd alone. If you have some time this week, I want you to write down John chapter six. Write down John six. I know we're in Mark. Write down John six. Here's why. There's this fantastic story of another crowd and Jesus' interaction with him. This is the same crowd that Jesus had uh, just got done um, feeding through the miracle of the loaves and the fish. Okay? And after that, this crowd, obviously they just saw this amazing miracle. They want more miracles. Want more signs. They want to see more stuff. Saying, Jesus, perform. We want to see this. But Jesus says no. Instead, he now shares part of the message with them. And he says, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm the bread of life. And it's not a real crowd pleaser of a message. He says, you want to follow me? You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And what's the crowd do? They start to disperse. They say, that's weird. I don't think I want any part of that. And they just get up and leave. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks this question. He says, hey, are you gonna leave too? Are you gonna go? And Peter, in one of his shining moments, he says, where are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. And his disciple got it. It wasn't about the crowd. It was about following him. It wasn't about the miracles and about performing the show. It wasn't about the signs. It was about what does it look like to be invited to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to authentically be about Jesus. He got it. His words were life. Life was in this guy. So what lessons does this crowd now help us uh, with following Jesus today? And first, don't be okay with just being a fan when it's most important to Jesus to be a follower. Does my faith, does the way that I worship, does my life look more like that of a fan? Finicky, cheering at moments and then going about my life? Or does it look like a follower? Number two, don't let my interest in Jesus rise and fall with what he can do for me. When the need stops or my prayer's gone. I wonder how many of those came to Jesus for healing, got what they were after, and simply walked away. And number three, don't be so caught up on the surface that you miss the substance. What do I mean? 
Don't settle for just a surface level or even secondhand understanding of Jesus. This crowd heard secondhand about Jesus. They came to see, but all they saw were these surfacey things. They didn't stick around long enough to embrace the substance and the message and who Jesus truly was. And as churchgoers, if we're honest, oftentimes we can get really drawn, captivated, and we might even attend somewhere just because of really superficial stuff. That's the stuff that makes me go to this church or that church or attend here or not. Is it about the stuff that matters to Jesus? Is it about the substance and the message? And before I move on super quick, just to hit verses 11 and 12, it says this, and whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And I find this passage, this little inclusion right here, super ironic, but I don't think it's out of place. You've got this first group and those, those who are starting to conspire against Jesus and they reject him. They reject who Jesus is, his identity. Then you've got this next group, the crowd, and they're so concerned about their own desires and what Jesus can do and do for them that they miss who really Jesus is. And now you've got this group of demons and the demons correctly see Jesus for who he is. They fall down, not because of the things that they want, but because they acknowledge that this is God. And I think that that speaks to what Jesus is gonna do immediately next with his uh, disciples. He's gonna now go and he's gonna form this group. He's gonna go up a mountain. He's gonna pray all night, as Luke's gospel tells us. And he's gonna make sure that who he is is known by those who will follow him. And that's where we're gonna move to next. And that's verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And I just want you to stop and I just want you to think about this moment. Up on the mountain, Jesus is calling names. He doesn't put a big list on a piece of papyrus and put it on the mountainside and say, hey, go check it out, like a sports team or something in high school. He's calling names. You gotta imagine he's, probably pointing, maybe motioning them over to himself, saying, you, I want you. I want you, Philip. I want you, Andrew. Verse 14, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So this is the third and final group we're going to look at this morning, and it's the chosen. It's now those who Jesus sought to be his disciples. And notice who's doing the seeking, it's different. This is Jesus. And this was way different than what was normally traditionally done back then. See, the way that it worked with religious teachers and rabbis is that you sought them. You found the rabbi that you wanted to learn from, be trained by, and then you basically, you put in an application. You said, I wanna be discipled by you. And Anybody who's gone through college admissions with you, somebody in your house, 
you know a little bit about what this is like. For me, I distinctly remember those high school years. I remember uh, researching schools. I remember seeing all the requirements and then the extra recommendations. And I remember getting to work. I remember all the AP classes. I remember all the clubs, all the groups, all the activities. I remember all the stuff, taking all the campus tours. I remember the tests, all the tests, standardized tests, subject tests, uh, all sorts of letters. Um, And then I remember there was that moment, pages and pages and pages of this application. You put it all together. Man, they've got family history and essays. You get your transcripts on there, all this stuff. And then there's a moment, the very last page, it saves as you go, thank goodness, and you hit this button, submit. And then after you hit the button, you wait. And you wait for days, weeks, months, checking your email. You're going to check the mail, you never check the mail, you're checking the mail. And you're hoping, you're hoping, you're hoping, you're hoping that at the end, when you get this letter, that it starts with the letter C for congratulations and not the letter U for unfortunately. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does not ask these men to fill out an application. Doesn't ask them to earn their way onto the team. Doesn't ask them to prove a single thing. Doesn't ask them to tell anything about their history. Doesn't ask them to jump through a bunch of hoops. See, the greatest, the greatest difference between the Christian faith and every other false religion in our world is that every other one will say what you can do for God, but what Christianity is, the following Jesus is about what Jesus, what God has done for you. That is the difference. You did not choose me, I chose you. He takes your application. However fantastic you think it is, or however discouraged and embarrassed and regretful you feel out of it, feel about it. He rips it up. Amen. And he says, I don't care what you're proud of, and I don't care what you're ashamed by. This is not about what you have done. This is about what I have done for you. I love you. I made you. I saw it all, and I still love you. Come and follow me. That's the picture that we get here to follow him. And the picture of what it means to follow him that we see here in these couple verses is a beautiful, simple, three-point outline of what does it mean for everyone to follow Jesus. And so let's look real quickly at what that is. The first one is simply that they might come to him so that they can come to him. And it all begins with his desire. If you look at the passage, he desired them. This is the group that he wants. This isn't the leftovers. This is who Jesus wants on his team. He even wants the one who's gonna betray him because he is so obedient to the father's redemptive plan. And notice that he chooses 12. It's no accident. It's no coincidence. In the Old Testament, the number 12 is incredibly significant. It's all over the place. If you read the Old Testament, you'll read the 12 uh, 12 stones in, in Joshua. You read about the 12 stones on the breastplate. You read 12, 12, 12. But there is nothing of more significance than what it means in regards to God's people. Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, And so when Jesus chooses these 12 people, he draws draws a line of connection, 
a line of continuity. Hey, you know the God of the Old Testament? Well, that's the God of the New Testament. And even though Jesus is doing something new, sharing what his new family, spiritual family looks like, didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. He's getting God's people. And now let's look for a second. Now, who does Jesus call? Jesus doesn't call the most educated, doesn't call the most wealthy, doesn't call the most powerful or impressive, doesn't call scribes out of the synagogue. He doesn't choose the most well-spoken. These are guys who have spent more time with fish than they have with people. And they probably smell like it too, probably not the best dressed. And look, look how vastly diverse and different they are. You got on one side, you got Peter. We hear a lot about Peter. I shared a shining moment of Peter, but not all moments, if you know, are shining of Peter. He's oftentimes kind of putting his foot in his mouth. He's bold and brass, and brash, and he's constantly kind of like, seems like he's saying the wrong thing. But then on this side, you've got his brother, Andrew. And you don't, you might not know as much about Andrew because we don't hear much as much about Andrew. He's more the, the quiet type guy behind the scenes. Very, very different than Peter. He's not impulsive. They're both on the team. Then you've got Thomas. He's a doubter. That's what you know probably about him. Doubters aren't known to be great initiators of things. So they doubt. But then on the other side here, you've got James and John. The sons of thunder. And when I think about James and John, my favorite story is, is in Luke chapter nine, there's this Samaritan village that says, hey, Jesus, you can't stay. And James and John say, hey, Jesus, would you like us to, to call down fire to destroy them? Hyper initiators, not initiated at all, both on the team. Now, one more. He picks Matthew, this tax collector. He's a Jewish tax collector. He's a Jewish tax collector, which means he's working for the Roman government. He's collecting money from his own Jewish people to fund the Roman army that is occupying the Jewish land. Not a popular guy. Viewed by his own people as a traitor. Turned his back on them. Okay? Tax collector, Matthew. Then on this side, you've got Simon the Zealot. And that's a capital Z. Because that was an aggressive political party that he was a part of. And they despise the Roman government. They despise anything that hinted of, any supporter of, anybody sympathetic to the Roman government, including Jews. They were oftentimes called dagger men because they were known to carry a dagger in their cloak, waiting for opportune moments to strike and carry out politically motivated assassinations on those who were Roman sympathizers and Roman uh, political targets, a la tax collectors, both on the team. And you look about the variety of, that God puts on his team. You think about the variety and maybe some of the small groups you're a part of. Think about the variety in our church. There's great reason for the beauty of diversity because it's the unity in Jesus that we share. And it's an incredible encouragement in general, for just those that are called to him. Those that Jesus called, he didn't call the best, he didn't call the qualified, he didn't call just one type of person. He calls ordinary, underwhelming, normal, flawed, real, authentic, different people. That's who he called. Those that were willing 
and to answer the most important question to him, will you follow? And every single one said, yes. So with this group, he desired them, he called them, and he appointed them. And he appoints them for two purposes, and this is where we'll wrap up. First one, and this is number two in the outline, so that they might be with him. The ministry and method of Jesus was pretty simple. To train and equip, it looked like this, to just be with him, to spend time with him. How do you wanna get to know Jesus? Just spend time with him. He wants to get to know you. He wants to spend time building that relationship with you. He wants you to get to know him. Notice that the crowd is identified anonymously by these regions, but the chosen, they are identified personally by name. Come to me, walk with me, learn who I am. Watch as I do, learn, and then go do and do, do what I do. As we continue, Mark, you're gonna see the priority that Jesus places on this group throughout his ministry. He invites them not to a study of religion, but to experience a relationship with him. And if there's something that I know to be true about relationships, it's that there's no substitute for time. Lonnie talked about, a little bit about this last week. We talked about prayer. Can't expect a great marriage if you're gonna spend five minutes a week with somebody. Can't expect a great relationship with our kids if we spend five minutes a day with them. There is no substitute for time and there's no shortcuts. And to think that would be true of our faith and our relationship with God would be errant. To know him takes time. And as a church, we talked about prayer last week. If you missed that message, go check that out. But we talk constantly about how important it is to spend time here. Because that's the biggest section here. Be with him. That's what it looks like. Be with him, spend time with him. Look at our last series, teaching series here. We talked about putting on the spiritual armor. Talked about being branches grafted into the vine. Be connected because this is so important. There's no substitute for it. This is where we get to know who he is. And last point here as we wrap up, all of those are for the purpose. He's called us to be with him so that they might be sent out. And so the ministry, of Jesus to be with him is for the purpose now that they're gonna be on this mission to go out for him. It's all preparing them. And as you remember, this is no surprise to them. This is really the, the call that bookends his entire ministry. At the very beginning, when he's out there calling these fishermen, what does he say? He says, I will call you fishermen to be fishers of men. And at the very end of his ministry, the resurrected Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, as he gives the great commission to his disciples and to the church and to everyone who follows, I want you in Matthew 28 to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptized like we did today, of all people groups like we're trying to care about. We've got two teams right now in other parts of the world and lots more opportunities coming up. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. Teach people to follow the word. Teach people to know the word. Teach people to understand it and to live it out in their lives. And don't forget, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Don't forget that the one who is with you sends you out, but yeah, by the way, he's with you as, as you go. That's important. And in another chapter, in, chapter, in Mark chapter four, there's this incredible storm and they forgot who was in the boat with them. And when finally they remember and he wakes up and they wake him up, man, storms are different with Jesus. I thought about this um, command a lot 
recently, and, and I thought about something funny. I thought about how, how ridiculous would it be if someone came up to, to, to you, I'll pick on you, and they said, I want you, miss, to go and make pharmacists. Are you a pharmacist? No, not a pharmacist. That'd be ridiculous. Would you be able to make pharmacists? No, no. Would you go, go and make chicken ranchers? Are you a chicken rancher? Not a chicken rancher? No. It would be ridiculous to look at the command to go and make disciples if Jesus had not just spent the past three and a half years with this group, showing them what does it look like to be a disciple? What does it look like to follow? Okay, now go and do likewise. That's why it's so important to spend time in the Word. That's why it's so important to be with Him. Because when we go out, that's exactly what we're sharing. And so the invitation now, hey, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I be successful? Is all tied in this progression of come to Him, be with Him, and now go and make disciples. Just to simply be used by Him and to be an influence for others. And it's really easy, as I close, it's really easy to look at this section of Mark chapter three and say that's for them. Yeah, the apostles, that's totally different than today. Uh, he, hasn't called, he hasn't called me to leave at all. He hasn't called me to vocational ministry. He hasn't called me to be a missionary. But the same mission given to these apostles is the same mission given to the early church and it's the same mission of this church. Love God, love people, go and make disciples. It's something we're all part of. And it's something that participation is not optional. It's what it looks like to be a follower. It's one of the three pieces. And we all have a part to play. And for you to say, how do I use right now? How do I use right where I'm at to paint a picture of Jesus to those around me? With my, my spouse, my kids, my coworkers, my neighbors, how do I be about Jesus and how do I simply try to reflect this one who I'm for, who I'm called to be an ambassador of and representative of? How do I paint a picture of Jesus so that they might not just see me, but see Christ in me? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna close by singing together. And uh, I do wanna encourage you again, go out and check out this, this ministry out of the table. This is a great opportunity to uh, do some of what we've been talking about here and to be focused on making disciples. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a chance to be in it and to, uh, Lord, look at both uh, warnings and wisdom. And um, I pray, Lord, that as we leave this building, as we're scattered as your church, as you have us in the many, many places that you have us, Lord, would we represent you, maybe shine your light, and Lord, may we help others to see who you are and the amazing, amazing change that it makes in us. Lord, help us specifically as dads, Lord, to be after you, on fire for you. And Lord, thank you for a chance to be together as a church family. And all God's family said, amen. amen.